Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 69, Memories. Who doesn't like a good memory or despises a bad one that keeps returning unasked for and unwanted? That's the modus operandi of most memories, though, showing up out of the blue with a life of their own, carried to your brain on secret winds or deep-running currents from ages past. But if you think about it, memories are really just like the ads that pop up on Instagram or Facebook. Always connected to your personal algorithm, of course. But sometimes you're like, um, excuse me, why am I seeing this? Or you try to report it as irrelevant or even offensive. Or you click happily on it, wanting to see more. Oh my God, I didn't know I needed to see this. Facebook, too, understands our fascination with memories, with their pushes on your feed that say, here's what happened to you five years ago today. Oh my God, totally forgot about it. Click. But yeah. All these damn memories. Very few of them complete and coherent. Mostly just shards of broken glass. Some shiny ones that catch the light ever so nicely. Others that we cut our fingers on. I spend too much time thinking about the randomness of memories. But it has always been a life philosophy of mine to actively create them. What is life but the creation of memories? So many times, I've stood on the cusp of doing something and was reluctant. But then I said to myself, dude, this will be a great story later in life. Back in 2014, during the World Cup, I was on holiday in France with my kids. After a long day at the beach, my daughter crashed. She was little, but my son and I settled in to watch Germany versus Brazil in the semifinal. He was supporting Brazil. I was more neutral. After 30 minutes, in a World Cup, Semi-final, Germany was up 5-0. It was unheard of in a semi-final. My son was irritated. He lost interest in the match, and he started to nod off next to me. I tried to keep him awake. We had been looking forward to watching the match together, but he was tired. And then I said, dude, stay awake. I don't know what is happening in this crazy match. But listen, when you're 40, this is one of the events that you'll remember where you were when it happened. That 12-year-old looked up at me with a, okay, um, actually, you know what? That makes sense. Look in his eyes. We watched the rest of the match, 7-1 to Germany. I asked him recently if he remembered where he was. He smiled and said, yeah, that Airbnb in Biarritz, you made me stay awake so I could answer this question later, and here it is. That's my boy. This whole this will be a good story later in life mantra has tossed me into doing some crazy stuff. Because a good story later in life means a lasting memory. I mean, even just this will be a good story next week can often be enough. We know that we have certain memory triggers. Our senses are powerful repositories for remembered events. Data centers, if you like. As I'm sure we all know, our sense of smell is the kingpin in the sensory memory world. 
My mom used to burn orange peels on the stove in the winter. You heard about that in a previous episode. It's an old smoker's trick to rid a house of the scent of tobacco. And I do the same thing, simply because it makes me remember a long line of things from my childhood home and my family. My son does it now, too, because, as he says, it reminds him of Grandma, even though he only met her when he was very little and once. Whatever memory in his head is totally fake, completely fabricated, and nonetheless so beautiful. I have done my part to help him form other fake memories from his own life. From the day he was born, I wrote a journal, more of a letter to him, and continued for a few years. Really, up until he was able to speak and conversations were to be had, and I noticed that I stopped writing. On his 16th birthday, I had it printed as a hardcover book and gave it to him, a detailed script of his first years. No doubt images and sounds and smells will be recreated, or created, inside his beautiful head, of things he otherwise wouldn't be able to remember. I didn't do the same for my daughter, who showed up five and a half years after he did. Second kids always get shafted, don't they? But I have way more photos of her, so a photo book is going to be a perfect gift. An image diary of remembered moments and a visual aid to create constructed memories. In the episode about storytelling, I mentioned how I've become the keeper of my family stories. But I'm the keeper of memories, too. I have detailed, moving images in my head of things that happened to people long dead that took place long before I was born. They are so completely real to me, and yet they are constructed. That red dress at the train station in Winnipeg in 1953, my paternal grandfather getting shanghaied in New York in 1922 and forced to sail back to Copenhagen against his will. My maternal grandfather's football career, the death of my paternal grandmother in 1942. My dad experiencing liberation in Copenhagen in 1945. Fervently protecting and remembering memories from the experiences of other people. Although I just read yesterday that it takes on average four to five generations for all memory of an average person to be completely erased and forgotten. Yeah. That did little to soothe my constant, anxious pondering of my own mortality. Isn't it just generally, frustratingly fascinating to wonder what memories are our own and which ones are borrowed or stolen from people we know or from strangers? I am writing this little section at a wine bar where I'm also re-re-re-re-re-reading Hemingway's A Movable Feast. I just read a passage that always chokes me up. Life had seemed so simple that morning when I had wakened and found the false spring and heard the pipes of the man with his herd of goats and gone out and bought the racing paper. But Paris was a very old city and we were young and nothing was simple there, not even poverty, nor sudden money, nor the moonlight, nor right and wrong, nor the breathing of someone who lay beside you in the moonlight. Ah, gets me every time. Conveniently, on the previous page, there is this. Standing there, I wondered how much of what we had felt on the bridge was just hunger. I asked my wife, and she said, I don't know, Tati. There are so many sorts of hunger. In the spring, there are more. But that's gone now. Memory is hunger. I can tell you that since I was a teen, I have wanted to go down early into the wet streets to get a racing paper in Paris and hear the goat herder playing his pipes 
calling people out of their flats, watching a woman place her bucket beneath the goat while the shepherd milks it. Watch her pay him. Watch the herd amble away to the sound of his pipes. I know this. This is real to me. I can feel it. And yet, look at me. I am a mere memory thief, a scoundrel, a ruffian, stealing memories in literary alleyways and taking them home and placing them on a shelf and looking at them like they are my own. One thing that won't be on this list, that I won't miss when I'm dead, is music. I have accepted the fact that most people think I am incredibly odd, that music doesn't feature prominently in my life. Months can pass without me even thinking about putting music on. I've tried to analyze this for years. It's as though listening to music places me inside someone else's head. I have to listen to their thoughts and dreams and, well, perhaps even their memories. Now, I know that's what happens when we read novels or watch films, but it's too claustrophobic to me. I can block my eyes by focusing on moving images or words in a book, but I can't seem to handle blocking my ears. I try to listen to podcasts when I'm traveling like sitting on a plane or a train with my noise-canceling headphones. But it's hard. Cutting off my hearing like that is freaky to me. I need to hear what's going on around me. I mostly listen to podcasts while I'm making dinner, with no headphones. I have rarely ever listened to the radio. The music thing changed during COVID, where I worked a lot more from home, and I discovered I needed music in periods to fill various voids. I ended up making a Spotify playlist I call That Window of Time When I Was Young which features a long line of new romantics and other songs from the time I was around 14 to 17 years old. I'll link to it in the description if you're interested. But I love what happens when I listen to it, especially the first time I did. Every single song, without exception, each triggered a very specific memory. There was no pattern to them. One can be a, a moment of time in a specific place. Another could be at a bar, and I remember looking across the room at a girl or a road trip, or sitting in my teenage room, or the feeling I had in a relationship at the time. All blinding flashes of light revealing fragments of memory in the darkness of the past. Many for the first time in decades. People long forgotten appear suddenly in cameos. So unexpected. Music does the same for you, I am sure of that. It's powerful. But doing it like I did, with one long playlist listened to for the first time in years, caused an avalanche that overwhelmed me for an entire day. It was wild. I loved it. Staying with music, it baffles me how songs can just appear in our heads out of the blue. Why that song all of a sudden? And then the memories that accompany it. Sure, you can hear a song in a store, and then it's stuck in your head afterwards. But I'm talking about the songs that you know you haven't heard recently and suddenly you're humming the melody or mouthing the lyrics. I like being able to track patterns and see how things all fit together, so this obviously irritates me. Generally, all these tiny fragments of memories that appear without warning, why? Why that person who I literally forgot all about since I knew them 40 years ago? It remains a mystery. What are they doing in my head? Do they even deserve to be there? But there are no breadcrumbs to follow at all. Non-consensual flashcards of past moments. Never traceable. I have a huge pile of journals that I've written since I was 17. Last year, I sat down to read them all. Most for the first time since I wrote them. I think I might have mentioned this before in a podcast episode. Maybe the handwriting segment. 
But yeah, memory. Often there when you don't ask for it, often nowhere to be found when you do. But the same applies to reading in those journals my detailed description of places and the people around me. So many of them are now complete strangers to me. And yet, look, I dedicated that many pages to describing them. Reading my detailed descriptions often does nothing to trigger my memory. I wrote about that woman for three neatly handwritten pages. And I'm reading words that came out of my own head based on things I saw with my own eyes. And yet, I don't have a clue who she is. She's completely gone. But sure, reading the journals, more often than not, triggers forgotten memories. Oh, yeah, I remember that or him, or her. But it's the ones that simply don't come back that I spend a lot of time thinking about. This is where we need to employ collective remembering. Find people who are there and listen to what they remember about the same event. Piecing those shards of glass together, using other people's brains as glue. In one of the previous episodes about the place where the river bends, I said that I think I took people there. I wasn't sure. I said that if I did, I hope that they have forgotten all about my secret place, leaving me alone with it. Yeah, that didn't work out. Luckily, my friend Lisa, who, for lack of a better phrase, I refer to as my high school sweetheart, and I, we have been friends ever since. She's been a listener of this podcast since I started many years ago. I know, I know. But we often discuss the various topics on Messenger. So I asked her, hey, do you remember me taking you there? I only have a fragment of a memory of parking up on the cliff and then walking down to the place where the river bends. So, I know that I was older, had a car, and I know I probably brought a girl to show her the place. I'm pretty sure of that. Lisa says she remembers sitting by a river watching me skip rocks. Huh, that's gotta be it. Not a lot to go on, but enough to confirm some details. Then we spent an hour talking about other stuff we remember which were rarely the same things, or sometimes different parts of the same thing. She remembers our first kiss in great detail, and when I asked her to the prom. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I remember when we had sex for the first time, which is kind of saying a lot about me. We remember different people from high school, different things we did together. Oh, we need more people on board in order to piece stuff together. I sent her a bunch of photos from that time we were together. One photo of us means nothing to either of us. We're on the side of a road, apparently. Looks like we're somewhere in the mountains. So then I sent them to Richard, with whom we did everything back then. Maybe he took the photo and remembers where it was and what we were doing. He confirmed that he took the photo and has more photos from that road trip we all took. Huh, what road trip? To where? No idea. I am dying to get more details about my own damned life. Lisa has also lived an eventful life. I'm wondering that if you live a life that is a constant generator of memories, traveling excessively, living in different countries, meeting new people, speaking other languages, does that diminish your ability to remember stuff farther back? Is there like some sort of limited hard disk space, one that varies from person to person? But then we might all have that friend who remembers everything. When I was researching an earlier episode, I needed some details from a friend and roommate at theater school in the late 80s. Lawrence. How many times did we actually drive from LA to Albuquerque to his mom's house? 
he filled me in. But then, he outed himself as a master rememberer, describing stuff we did, times we were at bars, what the weather was like, and he remembers everything, like he's seeing it right now and giving me a live play-by-play including details about the weather and what song was number one on the radio then and the name of plays that we saw at theaters and the people we were with. Again, telling me stories of my own life that I have no memory of. I feel fascinated and a bit stupid at the same time when it happens. There is reconstructing memories across the decades, but there is also stuff that happened more recently. Like I said, back when I had my urban planning company, I made a point of going out drinking with the crew. There was one wild Friday night here in Copenhagen. We were six or seven people, and we went bar hopping, and we were all very, very drunk. It was a great night. On Monday, we started telling our stories. Oh my God, I can't believe you did that, or do you remember when she did that? We reminisced happily, but early on, huge sinkholes started appearing. We all remembered fragments from that eight-hour period. It took us a week of conversations at lunch to piece it all together. A monumental, collective, remembering effort. Now I want to assemble a task force of people from my past to glue together the glass shards of certain events in my life. Not all the events, just the ones I want to remember. I've been sitting here searching for certain people from my past on Facebook and the Internet. I have questions. I remember reading a study about how most of our young childhood memories are constructed. Things were told to us and we formed images of them in order to desperately make them our own, to make them real. Like everyone else, I've tried to figure out what my first memory is. You've done the same. What's yours? But we can never be sure, can we? I have a short mental film clip of me sitting up on my dad's shoulders on a Sunday trip to the mountains. He didn't do that often. I must have been little, like under five. I remember the wow feeling of sitting up there. The funny thing is that in this film clip, I see myself from behind sitting on his shoulders, like I'm the third person watching the scene. It's super weird. There's no photo of this in the family archives. Nobody told me about this. I'm quite sure. Yeah, this is the unguarded no man's land between memory and dreams. Back to that hard disk metaphor. I live a different life compared to friends around the same age. I travel much more. I'm far more in the company of strangers, constantly meeting new people compared to the patterns I see in others with regular jobs, social circles, family, etc. I get a lot of people coming up to me saying stuff like, Hey, hi, Michael, you probably don't remember me, but we met at a conference, on a job, or whatever. By and large, they're right. I have no idea. When you constantly meet new people, it does make it harder to remember so many new faces. Think about it. For most of human history, we were surrounded by a small group of people we knew in the tribe. A manageable number of people to remember. But my brain is wired like this. Even if the person's face doesn't ring any bells or their name, I always ask, hey, where did we meet specifically? And if they're specific... Hey, it was at that dinner, you know, or in that bar, and we were talking to that person and doing that thing or whatever. Then the odds that I remember increase greatly. Weird. I need to visualize a place and then place that person in it, and then it clicks into place. Other people I know have brains wired differently. They remember faces or names or colors or whatever. I have a weird affliction related to memory. 
I can literally walk past people I know on the street, even my ex-wife and my children, and not recognize them if they're wearing a hat. Any hat or head covering, the people wearing it simply disappear. Oh, I have Googled the hell out of this to no avail. Maybe I am wired to remember hair in relation to a face. I simply have no idea. The thing that bugs me about memories is that we know so little about them and why they appear when they do or why they disappear, and that it's all so different from one person to the next. Generally, we seem wired to mostly remember good things that happen to us, of course. But we can't forget those unwelcome memories of things that happened that come catapulting back into our head. I have a long line of memories of things that happened that were bad, but also just, you know, vaguely awkward. Memories that deserve no life, and yet they come back to haunt at random moments. Again, without reason or logic or patterns. Some of the episodes are so completely irrelevant, and yet still plague me to this day. Now that we're avalanched constantly by films and series and YouTube and all manner of content, our memories must be challenged even more. I wrote on Facebook recently how we need a word for when you are seven episodes into a new series before you finally realize, oh my God, I've already watched this damn thing. It happened again recently, watching The White Orchid. It happened a while back when I was watching season one of Billions. The word? I suggest streamnesia. A friend of mine, Dwayne, on Facebook suggested Deja Viewed, which is also very cool. Let me ask you, what if you could take a pill and suddenly remember everything in your life in great clarity? Would you take the pill? The idea is appealing, but I think it would mess with our heads, cause an overload in our brains. There's a great film from the 90s called Until the End of the World directed by Wim Wenders. In it, there's a scientist, played by Max von Sydow, who develops the technique to record people's dreams. Then they can watch them played back on a device. What ends up happening? People become obsessed with it, recording their dreams, and then staring at the screen, watching them, disappearing completely, removed from reality, addicted. I think the same thing would happen if we could suddenly reactivate all our memories. We would withdraw into ourselves and watch these brain films and completely exit stage left from our lives. Now, ah, okay, I just remembered another film from the 90s, Strange Days, with Ralph Fiennes and Angela Bassett. People have the tech to record what they see and do, and a whole market emerges for these memory experience clips in the film. Other people can put electrodes on their head and watch someone else's memory, including all the physical and emotional sensations. Not surprisingly, sex is a big part of the market in this film, but the premise is fascinating. Last year, I had an episode. I was sitting at my desk at home working. My son came home and came into me and said, Hi, Dad, how you doing? We chatted. He went into his room. A couple of hours later, I went in to see him and I said, Hey, man, dude, I feel really weird. I don't know where I am or what day it is or anything. I remember nothing of this. It is his account. He said he started asking me questions. Do you know your name, age, what day it is? I got some of the questions right. I knew I was flying to Paris in the morning, but had no idea why. Couldn't really remember my exact age. He had me lay down and rest. 
continuously asking me questions. Then he called the emergency services. They said we should take a taxi to the hospital. This is hours after the episode started. I only remember fragments from when we headed out onto the street, heading for the hospital. Nothing before. Slowly, I started to come back, as it were. I kept asking him questions. How do we get to the hospital? Did I bring a jacket? I kept making fun of his sweater, saying it looked like pajamas. And every time he just said, Dad, you have literally asked me that 20 times, or said that 15 times. I have, I said. He had written down on his phone all the things I was asking and saying and how many times I had said it, with what time I said it next to it. It freaked me out, man. I started writing down the time when I asked him something on my phone. And then when he said, oh, Dad, you've asked me that, I started checking my phone, comparing it to his phone and seeing, oh, my God, I had said it only 15 minutes ago. I was a spectator to my own memory loss. I gradually came back to my senses. The fear was that it was an aneurysm in the brain. After a thorough consultation and an MRI scan, the doctors ruled that out luckily. They said it was probably something called TGA, transient global amnesia, which is also just a great name for a band. But it happens to people over 50, and it happens basically once, and then disappears. Nobody knows why, or really anything about it at all. I'm sure we all fear getting serious illnesses. You probably have a list of nasty stuff that you really don't want to get. Cancer, stuff like that. But I get the impression that diseases like Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are the ones people fear more. My episode that I had last year still freaks me out when I think about it. And even more so in the week after it happened. I lost a day of my life, and it ain't coming back, even though my son has told me all the details about it several times. The fear of losing our mind. Our memory is strong. For all the randomness of our memories, we cherish them. They define us. We do not want to lose them. Our lives are like a dartboard. Dartboards, fun fact, are made of strands of fiber-like hairs from the Cicillana family of cactus. Thousands of tiny, pointy strands. Even if you fill up the dartboard with darts, you can never hit every strand, every memory. There will still be thousands of spots on the board that are untouched, unremembered. For all the frustration at the randomness of memories, maybe it is by design that we don't remember everything. Maybe that's a good thing. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for being out there.